I'm glad that God doesn't use Google Translate because I have written people in Spanish or other, and they're like, what are you saying? You know, you put it in English and then the translation is way off. I am very thankful that, that God hears us in our hearts even more than the language. He hears us deep down. And, and as Romans says, in the moanings, the Holy Spirit translates it and, and gives what our hearts are saying even more than what our mouths are saying. Sing with me. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. In Christ the Lord. Father, praise and honor and glory be to you. May the Spirit not only listen, but may he empower us to do something awesome for the cause of Christ. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, I mean the week before was the end of the week before, We know that, and these are becoming more and more familiar, that there was a school shooting where 17 people had died. You know, an athletic director, phys ed, coach, students. And as they're discovering, there was somebody available to do something. I don't know if you saw that in the news just within the last couple days that there was a sheriff's deputy that pulled up and he was armed. He was armed. Yet he waited for over four minutes for somebody else while he heard people shooting or somebody shooting inside. He waited while people, people's lives were taken. Well, they've even outed him. His name is all over the news. It's all over the internet. Because they've even shown video of how he was a respected police officer for years. Yet he froze in taking action. If you go to the picture next, who was born before 1964? And you guys are old. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) All right. I'm glad you own that, Bill. In 1960, does anybody recognize this picture? Does anybody know the name of this young lady? She was 28 years old at the time. Well, at least, does anybody remember the name? It's such an old article, 1964. Her name was Kitty Genovese. Oh, Kitty Genovese, if you remember the story, actually where she became more than just a New York name to a worldwide name was when this article from the New York Times came out in the end of March of 1964. It says this. This is how it starts. For more than a half an hour... 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of the bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off each time he returned 
sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police. Uh, telephoned. The police, during the assault, uh, one witness called after the woman was dead. Now, after investigation, because four years ago was the 50th anniversary of, of her passing, um, there was more investigation to her death. And this is believed to be probably the more accurate. Not 38 people, but there were still people. So Genovese was a bar manager, and at 2.30, you know, they stay up a little bit later than most of you guys stay up, and at 2.30 in the morning, she decided to go home. It was, it was time to, to go to bed. She drives home, and at about 3.15, she ends up at her parking lot, which is about 100 feet from her apartment door. She parks there, and Winston Mosley is waiting. He's not waiting for her. As his account said while he was interrogated, he was waiting just to kill a woman. He'd woke up at 2 a.m. next to his wife and decided to go out stalking. He sees her, he follows her to this parking lot, waits for her to get out, and as she goes, he runs after her, attacks her twice in the back. She screams out, and somebody from the window says, let that woman alone. And with that, he runs away. He gets in his car, he drives for about 10 minutes, and he comes back to finish the job. She, at this time, had crawled her way into an apartment vestibule and reached a door that was locked. He goes to the train station, he goes to the parking lot again, and eventually he finds her and finishes the job and also assaults her intimately. And then he leaves. Finally, as she is breathing her last, a woman, an elderly woman who was five foot nothing, comes down, picks her up, and screams out, call 911, and holds her there. And finally, somebody calls. Now, the story went across the world that New York City is the worst city in the world because all of the residents turned a blind eye. 38 people witnessed this and said, nope, I'm not getting involved. Now, as they started in investigating years later, they found out that it's probably not 38 witnesses, witnesses. But there were some that were recorded. And I want to just share a couple, of, uh, a couple of these instances. There was a guy named Joseph Fink who actually was right across the street and saw the first attack. And after Mosley had fled, instead of going to help her, he decided to take a nap. At the second attack, where, remember, she's in a, an apartment vestibule, the second attack, there was a guy named Carl Ross that saw it happening because he cracked the door open, and when he saw it happening, 
he closed the door, decided to call a friend who was in a different borough, and he says, what should I do? And the guy says, don't get involved. And so he eventually crawls out the window, goes to another apartment, and after they heard, call 911, he calls. It's believed that at least eight to nine people actually witnessed somehow what was happening and let this woman die. Only that old lady, and she was a little too late, came somewhat to her rescue. So later on in that decade, there were these two New York psychologists. And their names are, I know it's Darley and Latain, but I want to get their first names. Bib Latain, Bib is a very unique first, first name. Bib Latain and John Darley. And they started saying, there is a problem when you have more than one bystander. So they would call this the bystander problem or the bystander effect. And what they did is they, they set up these experiments. And what they would do is they would have two people in, in a room, and one was an actor. And the actor would have an epileptic fit, and if this person witnessed it, they would come to help 85% of the time. Now, if there were several rooms and they all knew that there were people in them and they all witnessed the same thing, let me get it exactly right, only 31% of the time, somebody would come to their help. That should blow your mind. If there was one person, 85%. If there were multiple, 31%. They did the same thing when they knew that some, they would see smoke coming out of a, a door room and they knew somebody might be in danger. If, they were, if there was one person that witnessed it, 75% of the time they would call somebody for help. If there were multiple, if they knew that there were multiple, a group, only 38%. So with a group, they decided, you have diffused responsibility. If there is a group, somebody else will get involved. Somebody else will take the step. Somebody else will do it. You guys know this. That's the problem. I, as a teacher, know this with group projects. I actually think they're good at times, but the person, if you get in a group, you know a group project, everybody's probably been in a group project, either at school or at work, and you're the one who likes to do, you know, you want to be on top of it, you're like, oh, I got stuck, I got stuck with Tony and Alex, oh, I'm the one who's going to do everything, which was probably true, <laughs> just joking, but you know how it is, it is, we expect other people to do it. I know that doesn't happen in the church. There was sarcasm there. But it happens everywhere. We, when there is a group of people, 
we fall into this bystander effect and expect other people to do something. Now let's come to our text. The text we read was this in 1 Samuel 17, and I'm actually going to go to the, the actual text. 1 Samuel 17, verses 40 and 41, says this. Then he took his staff in his hand. He took his staff in his hand. Let me get back to there. Chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them into a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. Now, you remember, for you who drive, what is said on the passenger side mirror? Yeah. The things that, you know, whatever's there is closer than you really know. It, your perception here is a little bit skewed right now. And I wonder when David is far, if he really realizes the magnitude of Goliath. And as he's coming closer, because it specifically says he is coming closer, and now they are toe-to-toe, probably, you know, and I wonder what David is looking at. You know, this next picture, I don't know if you guys know who these are. Okay, does any, okay everybody knows who the guy on the right is, right? Who is it? Shaquille O'Neal. Now, he was not the tallest player that has ever played in the NBA, but I would say he was the biggest. Um, and probably the greatest at his size, you know, it's believed they, you know what, they really don't know what weight he ever really got up to. They say his, his highest recorded was about 350, 360, but some people believe he got up to about 400 pounds. Just massive. You know, seven one seven two, and, you know, could you imagine 400 pounds coming at you? Earl Boykins was not the shortest either, but He's the only one I could see that ever was pictured with Shaquille O'Neal. I believe he was five foot five, you know, about 150 pounds. Could you imagine them fighting? <laughs> but you know that this really probably wasn't where, what it really looked like. Uh, I am asking one young man, one child to come up here because I want to show you if... The proportions are correct that he was really six cubits which, and a span. If he was really close to 10 feet tall, and by the way, the, the Hebrews at that time, the average height was believed to be about five foot five. I would have been loving it there. <laughs> you know, I'll be a giant. What's up? No, you go get that. Instead... Instead, I moved to Texas, and everybody's a giant down there. So this is probably more what it was like. You can walk up here with them. It's okay. Just, yeah, you might want to bring them up. Can, can I ask you a couple of questions? Can I just, Andres, I'm not going to hold you or anything. Okay. Can, can you just stand on this step? Just right there. Okay. How much does he weigh? 
33 pounds. I'm 180 pounds. He is 33 pounds. Now, I believe Goliath was not a skinny rail. I believe that he was, you know. Um, this is a six-time weight difference. Yeah, we're, he's half my height, but six times in weight, in girth. I have girth. <laughs> this is probably more realistic. Actually, people, that's, thank you. Can you give him a hand? Come on, you know. I wasn't going to do it because he was a little bit afraid. But when Goliath looks at him, he's probably like, oh, hey, little one. Ah, oh, let me burp you. So there are scholars that, that have said, that have tried to discredit this story. And they've said, well, he was a giant, but since they were only five foot five, a giant at that time could have been seen as about six foot six. Something like that, six and a half feet. I don't believe that solely on the size of the armor. You, if you see, if you read how heavy his armor was, it says it was 5,000 shekels. That's how much it weighed, which is the equivalent, some people on the low estimate, 125 pounds, on the high estimate, 150 pounds. Now remember, Shaquille O'Neal is... He's seven foot one, 400 pounds. So he's taller than what they were saying a giant was. Could you imagine putting Earl Boykins on his back and him trying to be effective in moving? No. So if you have a six foot six, 250 pound guy, sorry. I don't believe it. His spearhead alone was between 15 and 20 pounds. Now, do you know what? Is there a ball in some kind of sport that weighs about 15 pounds? Bowling. Could you imagine making a bowling ball with a, a weaver's beam, you know, this big beam, and a bowling ball at the end, and trying to fight with that? I mean, a bowling ball. That's just his spear. And it only gives those two weights. But it also says that he has armor on his head and on his legs. We're talking, he probably, he could have had an estimate of 225 pounds of armor. And you're telling me he was only six foot six and he was an effective warrior? Yikes. So, I believe he was really close to 10 feet tall. He was huge. And as he's coming close to David, the baby, uh, David's just saying, oh, maybe you are a little bit bigger than I thought. But here's the thing. I believe that the story of their fight is connected to the previous chapter. So I want us to rewind. Rewind to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 3. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? 
since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way, and I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it, and he's going to kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Now, you guys know this story, so I can go back and forth. You know who he wants, and that person is who? David. Because David is huge. Is that correct? No. Actually, when we get to the story, David is not even on the scene. He's forgotten. Hey, I'm inviting all of you to the sacrifice. I want your kids here. He's like, well, he's definitely not going to want David there. David's got a job to do. He's, you know, he's my shepherd. And he doesn't even invite David to the sacrifice. I'm talking about Jesse, his dad. His dad didn't even believe in him. He said, that's what's going to happen. Let's continue reading. Verse 5. Samuel replied, Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So who's the eldest son? What's his name? Eliab. But the Lord said to Samuel, You foolish man. Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. So why did Samuel, according to the Lord's rebuke, why was Samuel thinking that Eliab was qualified? His appearance and his height. Okay, don't, you know, I've still rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab. So who's the second son? Abinadab, and had him pass before, in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen him either. Jesse then had Shammah, and the third son is? Shama passed by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Now, Jesse had how many sons? Seven sons. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. He doesn't name any of the other ones. He names the top three, and then he goes through the rest of the seven. So he asked Jesse, are these all you got? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending sheep. You don't really want me to go get him, do you? He says, I'll wait. I'll wait. He was willing to wait for David. He says, I will not even sit down and eat until you bring him here. And you know the story. 
He is anointed as king. You know, the one who's probably most surprised is who? David! I wasn't even invited to the sacrifice. And I'm here. Oh, what are you doing? Oil on my head? What's this for? You are the next king. Do you know this? And I know you know this, that our A-team is not always God's choice. Actually, usually isn't God's choice. Out of the disciples, who was believed to be the most qualified by his peers as a disciple? Judas. Now, for you who do not know what Judas did, he was the least qualified of the, dis- of the disciples. But they felt he was the most. Even the disciples themselves, because they were at their own vocations, they were already passed over to become disciples of a rabbi. They were all, they're older. They would not become disciples of a rabbi. And one of them is Matthew, which was who? What was, he, what was his job? A tax collector. IRS. But worse than the IRS. Because he had the freedom. Now, I'm not saying that some IRS agents don't do this. But he had the freedom to say, even though I'm supposed to tax you $2 a piece, it's $3. $3, $3, $3. Where's that extra dollar going? Right here. Right here. Right here. That's what he did. Tax collectors were thought of as worse than the Romans because they were their countrymen but traitors and stealing from your own country. Yet God chose him. God actually says, come follow me to him. Matthew didn't go seek him out. He says, no, 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 you're coming with me. I'm going to make you a disciple. So David, this handsome little cute boy, you're the next king. Huh. Now we fast forward back to the story. And it says this in verse 13 of chapter 17. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul into war. I hope a light bulb just went bing, light bulb. The first was who? Eliab. The second was Abinadab. And the third was Shama, he names all three. The two stories are connected. They are not qualified to be the next king because if you know the story, did they step up toe-to-toe with Goliath? No, they were there. They had their opportunity to say, This is my rightful claim. I should be the son of Jesse that is the next king. And because of that, I am going to go fight Goliath. But instead, like in verse 11 and 24, it says this. Verse 11 of chapter 13, it it says, oh, if I can find it. On hearing the Philistines' words, because he'd come out and he'd say, I defy the ranks of Israel, you know, and he curses their God. He says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites in the army, were dismayed and terrified. They were freaking out. And in verse 24, it says the same thing. 
24 says this, When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran in great fear. They were freaking out. Now, according to the earthly appearance, who should have been the first one to say, I fight you, Goliath? Saul. And it's not just because he's the king, but if you remember when he was anointed, it says he was head and shoulders taller than everybody. You little Israelites, it is me, Saul. He should have been the first one to say, I am anointed and I'm bigger. I'm going to fight. But he's afraid. It says Saul and, his Isra- and his, all the Israelites are afraid. Who is next? Who should have stepped up next? Probably. Eliab. It says he was, he was good. You know, his appearance and his height was good. He's probably the next one who should have stepped up. And then the next? Abinadab. And the next? Shammah. And then the whole rest of the army should have stepped in front of David. No, 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 you're not going. All right, I'm going. I will go face the giant. But everyone is freaking out. They're all afraid to step. And this is my opinion why. Are they just afraid of their own lives? Think about what the, the cause or the, the original bet, bet was. If we fight, so I'm going to fight Joe, but we're going to fight not just see who wins, but if I win, I get your house and all your family becomes my slave. And if you win, you get my house and all of my family becomes your slave. There's a lot on the line. You're not just fighting for yourself. You're fighting for a whole nation. They're afraid. Um, if it's just for me, I would do it, but, but I, I just don't want to be responsible for a whole nation. I don't want to be responsible for other people. How often we do the same in our lives. There are people all around us, at work, at school, that are dying without the grace of Jesus Christ, that are dying without the message of how great his character is, how great his love is, without that. And we're letting the bystander effect affect us. I don't want to get involved in somebody else's business. I don't want to be responsible for for what happens. Because if I mess up, I don't want to, I, I just don't want to mess up somebody else's life. When God is just saying, anybody, step up. Anybody, step up. Anybody. Uh, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not good at that. That's how, you know, that's nominating committee style. Uh, yeah, I know you're calling, Pastor, but... And, and I believe in gifting. We believe in gifting ministry. So if you absolutely don't like to teach youth because you're not gifted in that way, I do not want you teaching youth. I don't want you teaching youth. We don't. But that doesn't mean if you have a house, you can't open your house up and say, all right, youth, I'm opening up my house and I'm ordering pizza. You can all come over and somebody else can teach you. 
But if nobody does it, if everybody expects somebody else to do it, then we're like the Israelites before David comes on the scene. Oh, I'm afraid. I, I, really hope, I really hope Eliab does it. I hope Patricia steps up and fights him. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't strike a girl, would he? You know, you go fight him, Patricia. Oh, and she got his glasses. You wouldn't hit somebody with glasses. And we all do this. And people are being lost inside our church and outside because we're afraid to act. When all he's saying is, just act. Now, here's the thing. Was David qualified? Yes. I will show you. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 32 to 37. All right, so you're already there, 32 to 37. He says to Saul, let no one lose heart on the account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, eh, you won't go out there uh, against this Philistine and fight him. You're just a little boy. And he has been fighting since he was your age, since he was your size. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping your father's sheep, his father's sheep. When a lion came or a bear, and I don't know what size it is, but a bear is a bear. I am not fighting a bear. I just hope, and I've always heard this, that if I'm with people and there's a bear, I don't have to be the fastest. I just don't want to be the slowest, you know? Um, a bear and a lion. And when they came and stole a sheep, it says, and they came upon me, I took it by its hair. Can you imagine if he is five foot three at this time, let's say even at full height, five foot five, a buck 40, and he grabs that bear by its hair, and I shoved that knife in that bear. What? Was he qualified? Yeah, he was. Firstly, because he had courage. I am not fighting a bear for a sheep. Come on. Value. That's about value. All right? There's very few people that have, less va that have more value than me. All right? So, you know, that's about value. That's a sheep. Go ahead, have it. You want all of them? Okay, I'm out of here. Hey, Dad, we're out of sheep. He's, but he said for one little sheep, he would grab it by its hair and kill it. Whoa. Saul was taken back. All right, let's put some armor on you. And he couldn't carry the army. Armor. Let's go to Judges chapter 20. But keep your spot in, in 1 Samuel. Don't go too far. All right, Judges chapter 20. When it describes not just him, but all of these slinging people, you know, they're sort of like the gunslingers of the Western world, I mean, in the Old West. Verse 16, it says this, Among all the soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone... At what? At a hair and not miss. Now, I don't know if that's being, you know, it's a figure of speech. I'll tell you. I don't care how close you are. If you're aiming for a hair with a stone, I don't think you're making it. 
And maybe if you're this close, and oh, I got that, you know. But they had, they were slinging stones, and they were so accurate. Was he qualified? Yes. Now, mostly qualified. Go back to 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, which we read earlier. It says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. What qualified him most is he had the heart. David had heart. David was not afraid of what, he, he was not afraid of what a lion or a bear or a 10 foot, 900 pound man, which some people estimate he could have been up to 1,200 pounds. At the low estimates, probably around 800 pounds of a man who could have picked him up like this. And instead, he goes because he has heart and he believes in the power of his God. That's what it means to have heart. Now, before I leave you without any Hebrew, you must know that there are two Hebrew words that are translated either hero or champion. And the first one, if you go to the next slide, is Ish Habanaim, which all it means, and it's translated champion in some, is the one who meets in the middle. That's all it means. Literally, it means the one who stands in the middle. Now, in verse 51, the word that is translated hero or champion is gibor, which means the one who prevails. Now, here's the thing. Maybe God is just wanting somebody who's willing to meet in the middle. Do you catch that? He is more about your availability than your ability because he will compensate for the rest. For the 150 pounds versus 800 pounds, he will compensate for the other 650 pounds if you will just go to the middle. He's just looking for people that are willing to go to the middle. That's all he wants. And he will make you prevail because he is God. That is the story of David. He was Ish Habenaim. I'm just going to go and trust God. And then he became Gibor, the conqueror. God is looking for that. Now to end this full circle, remember we had bystander effect and that affects all of us. We always wait for somebody else to do something. If you've worked in the church or in a business long enough, you know that. Oh, we're out of paper over there. All right, somebody will get it. Do you know how you end the bystander effect? You end it by actually empowering people to certain ministries. So, for example, if Kathy is over here and she is, she's stopped breathing, 
And there's a group of us looking at her to end the bystander effect of us just watching her die. We say, somebody sends, Joe, I need you to call 911. Patricia, I need, do you know CPR? Please perform CPR. And to end bystander effect is where people actually start and are empowered to do something. Maybe that's what we need, not just here at Downers Grove, but globally. To change this world, people need to be empowered to act. Because all God's asking you for, he doesn't expect that you're a doctor to save, just do something to help save this life. He doesn't expect you to be a pastor to reach your coworker for Jesus Christ. All he says is tell your experience. Jesus has changed my life. And I want to share it with you. I have a book called Steps to Christ and it has changed my life. I would like to share it with you. That's it. Just that empowerment to action could save a people. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and give you honor and glory. Empower us to ministry. Empower us to do something where we aren't standing from the sidelines waiting for somebody else. May we all meet in the middle and may you make us conquerors through this. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. told Moses to tell Aaron to tell the sons. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and, give, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you peace. Father, empower us. Empower us just to be the bold man and woman to meet in the middle. And may you be glorified when you make us victorious. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Sabbath, everybody.